ideas and worldviews are often deeply connected to things like technology, to things like history, uh, to things like economic realities. And and so digital liturgies kind of continues that trajectory by uh, helping, I, I hope, us to understand some of the pathologies of our current moment as really material pathology. So if you if you give a person an iPhone and you seal this person away from meaningful human contact and you kind of give them a, a, a definition of work, a definition of sexuality that is disembodied, that is is kind of removed from who they are as whole persons, then you're going to get these results. You're going to get these five digital liturgies. You're going to get a certain kind of person thinking in a certain kind of way, doing certain kinds of things. Well, I thought the first question that we needed to start with is how do you pronounce the name of the city where you and your family live? Yeah, uh, so it's Louisville. Louisville, uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And the the telltale sign that you're talking to someone who's not from Louisville is that they'll say either uh, Louisville or even worse, Louisville, <laughs> which if, you're, if somebody says Louisville, then they've either just moved or never paid attention. Uh, but the, the local pronunciation is Louisville. We just had a... Uh great argument about this on our family uh, group chat and our daughter-in-law who li lives here in California and is born and raised here is convinced that uh, it was either Lewis. I can't remember if it was Louisville or Louisville. Uh, but as someone who spent most of my childhood in Kentucky, um, I just wanted to get a native, someone who's living there to, to come down on my side of the argument that it is, it is indeed <laughs> Louisville. Louisville. That's right. Louisville. You, you just, when you say Louisville, it just kind of, you know, that's just a little too French. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta kind of flatten it out. Louisville. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, congratulations, Samuel, you just finished or your, your book that you've been writing the past year plus digital liturgies just released. It's available on Amazon and I'm sure many other uh, sites. Um, it's a uh, it's a great accomplishment, and I had the chance to mm. read it this past week. Um, I'm excited about this conversation, but just wanted to start by by saying congratulations for getting that book out into the world. Thanks, Andrew. I really appreciate that. It's it's very gratifying to see it out in the wild. Now you are a writer. This is something that you've done for years. You've you've been published online in article form, you blog at Substack. So writing is not a new thing for you, but is this your first book that, that you've had published? Yeah, it really is. So I earlier, uh, earlier a few months ago, I, I did have a, a very small kind of booklet published with Nine Marks in their Church Questions series, which is a, it's like a, you know, 4,000 word, almost like a pamphlet. Um, but yeah, this is my first kind of traditional book, and uh, yeah, it's been a lot of a lot of fun to to work on, and a lot of fun to see 
uh, the design and production on it. Yeah, well, it's very well done. You would never guess that this was your first go at a, uh, a, a full length book. How did writing a book affect you or change you or, or did it? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think writing a book is quite a bit different than writing an article uh, in a lot of ways. But one way that was particularly relevant to me was understanding the audience for this book. So, you know, I, I've been in the publishing industry now for over six years. And we say in the publishing industry to authors, you know, you need to know who you're writing to and you need to be able to, to clearly kind of state your audience and, and communicate to them. And I think when you're when I was writing this book, I, I tried to be keenly aware that uh, a lot of people that might pick up this book were coming to these ideas very cold. Like they're, they're going to, you know, a blog or a newsletter. Uh, one of the gratifying things about that is that you, you write about the same topics. And so your thought is kind of developing in real time. And then the people who subscribe to your stuff mm. can kind of track along with you. And so if I write something about technology, well, my readers, a lot of them will have a sense of what I've written in the past. And so they're not coming to it as cold. Uh, the book is different. You're, uh, you're trying to reach uh, people who may have never thought about this at all from a kind of a reflective angle. So I think in writing the book, uh, I, I was challenged and uh, tried with probably uh, varying levels of success to kind of enter the headspace of someone who hasn't read anything on this, who hasn't thought about this. Um, so I, and I think that's a good exercise for writers to do. And I, I'm, I would hope that that experience would translate not just to book writing, but also to, to article writing. Um, I do think I have a tendency to kind of assume that my audience for a given article kind of knows what I'm talking about. They're tracking with me right off the bat. And I think it's good to be reminded that um, when, when you're speaking to a mixed group, you're speaking to people who need to, to know what you're saying, to know the definition of words, to know, uh, like, what, what do you mean when you say this? What, why would you say something that way? And to not take anything for granted, but to really do the work of laying a foundation. So I, I think that was one way in which the writing the book kind of um, helped me think about the task of writing and the task of communication a little bit more clearly. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Is it something that you enjoyed? Is it something that uh, you see yourself doing more in the future? Yeah, I hope so. I I really enjoyed it. I uh, I especially enjoyed kind of the the structural component of it of of coming up with. Um, you know, the, the two parts and then the five digital liturgies. Um, I think, I think getting that was itself like one of the bigger insights, like how to organize this thought. Um, and so I enjoyed the research for it. I enjoyed, enjoyed the writing. Uh, I, I hope, I hope it's something that I, I get to do. And, and I say get to do very intentionally. I, I don't really want to become like a, 
a professional book author, you know, just kind of trying to pump out a book, you know, every month or uh, every six months. Um, I, I don't really want my relationship with thinking to be kind of pigeonholed into a need for content. I, I want I want the next book I write to be like the first book I wrote, which really came out of a, a sense of, hey, I think this needs to be said because I don't really see anybody else saying mm -hmm. this. I think there's a there's a space for for this idea uh, and and to let it grow naturally. I've, I've had people ask me, like, what are you going to write about next? And my answer in a lot of cases has been, I don't know. Like, I, I can tell you, like, what I've been thinking about, but um, it's really a matter of of feeling out the the idea that I think uh, the Lord has put me on and, and being able to articulate it well, um, rather than just, you know, pump something out for the sake of having it published. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of how I, I feel toward that. That makes a lot of sense. Having followed your work for a little while now, I do know that the themes you focus on in this book, and by the way, I think we I'm not sure if we mentioned the, the title or not, but if folks are interested in this book, it's called Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age. So, um, yeah, having followed your work for a while, it's obvious that you have done a lot of thinking and writing on, on these themes and on this topic. I think that comes through in the book. It's in my mind, it's a very concise distillation of a lot of the themes and insights that that you've written about over on your Substack and in other places on the on the web. Um, in fact, I would say the way I, I would think about this is that this book is on my Mount Rushmore of books. I've got four books that I think um, every modern Christian should try their best to, to read. And they aren't in any particular order here, but uh, the first of those would be How Not to Be Secular by James mm. K.A. Smith. And, and what Smith does in that book is he actually has a condensed um, take on Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, which is mm -hmm. a much more robust, uh, thorough treatment of of the the secularism of our modern of our modern age, but I think that's a great introduction. How not to be secular by James K. A. Smith, and then uh, the second would be Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil mm -hmm. Postman. Again, mm -hmm. he does a great job of just talking about how technology and and the mediums that we use in communication in modern times actually reshape the way we think and the kind of people we become. That book was written back in the 1980s, but it's more relevant today, I think, than ever. Uh, a third would be the book Strange New World by Carl Truman. He does a, a great job mm. of talking about how both modern philosophical thought and modern technologies have worked together to, to bring about a, a new world, a strange new world that many of us have mm -hmm. seen so rapidly turn from what might have been considered normative back in the 1950s, let's say, to where we find ourselves today. And then I would put digital liturgies up there on the Mount Rushmore. Wow. <laughs> and I, I, I wasn't surprised to see that you were referencing several of those authors in your work because they are related mm -hmm. themes. But, but these are books that I think people should read, modern Christians should read, if we want to be effective ambassadors for Christ. Because how we're being shaped and how our neighbors, maybe just as importantly, how our neighbors are being shaped to, to think and, and to view the world and live in the world. It is so rapidly changing. Mm -hmm. 
that I think we can lose our bearings if if we don't understand why things are the way they are. Mm -hmm. Well, the, first of all, that's way too kind. I, I definitely don't think that uh, <laughs> that book uh, belongs in the presence of those other three. Um, I, f I feel like I don't know if anyone's ever seen the internet meme of like those soldiers that are lined up on a wall about to like invade and like they're all dressed in fatigues and they've got their firearms and then there's a clown in like a full <laughs> clown costume kind of like in the middle i feel like that's that's my book on your mount rushmore um not at all not at all i i i, I don't <laughs> sell yourself short i think i think what you're addressing is distinct enough and like you said you, you don't see what you're talking about addressed very often i think it's uh i think it's essential um but it is my mount rushmore so like other people i'm sure would have different but these four books have been oh, probably sure. the most helpful to me in trying to get a good. It's mm. almost like reading those have helped have helped me look at the world and say, "That's why. That's why. That's the way it is." Or that's where that person. Mm. That's why that person has that view, or that they're making that statement. Yeah, I I think I would hope that digital liturgies um, kind of contributes something that I think those three books that you mentioned all contribute, which is a connecting tissue between material things and events and ideas. So to understand that ideas and worldviews um, aren't haphazard, like they don't, they don't just randomly spring out of the ground. It's like, well, yeah, one day we woke up and we had a sexual revolution or one day we woke up and we were all, uh, you know, buffered selves or uh, we were all committed to expressive individualism. Actually, there are, there are material, there are historical, there are even economic reasons for, for why these ideas tend to succeed, why they endure. Um, a, a great book I'm just going to recommend to your listeners uh, that just came out is uh, Andrew Wilson's Remaking the World, uh, which is about the year 1776 and how several different kind of strands of world history combined in 1776 to kind of create this post-Christian age that we're living in now. That that book is really uh, just a masterly example of what I'm talking about, of how ideas and worldviews are often deeply connected to things like technology, to things like history, uh, to things like um, uh, economic realities. And, and so digital liturgies kind of continues that trajectory by uh, helping, I, I hope, us to understand um, some of the pathologies of our current moment as really material pathology. So if you, if you give a person, if you give a person an iPhone and you seal this person away from meaningful human contact and you kind of give them a, a, a definition of work, a definition of sexuality that is disembodied, that is, is kind of removed from who they are as whole persons, then you're going to get these results. You're going to get these five digital liturgies. You're going to get a certain kind of person thinking in a certain kind of way, doing certain kinds of things. Um, and, and that's kind of the, that's the whole premise of the book. And that's, that's kind of what those other books that you mentioned do as well. They take, uh, they take things that we can observe and experience things that we're living in now and explain how, Hey, these are, these are, you know, plausibility structures that make certain ideas and worldviews more likely to our intuitions than they would would have been otherwise. 
and all of us are were born into this era that we live in this this modern age uh which is a very uh materialistic um secular humanistic uh, age and you you talk in the book about a commencement address that david foster wallace gave where he he talked about fish swimming in water and not being able to understand the concept of water because they're just they've been surrounded by it their entire life for them it doesn't really even exist as a concept and yet uh, they're they're constantly surrounded by it they're affected by it and the same is true for us and yet because of the the fall um we we know i guess what what would be different is that you know water works fish work really well in water and the difference mm -hmm. for us is that there are things about the modern age uh and our fallen world that that we we occasionally realize that things aren't the way they should be or we have this nagging sense of of loss or um something being out of out of sync out of joint and these books i think do a great job of um, helping us articulate and, and understand why that is or, or point us to why that that feeling is there and maybe more importantly what we can do about it um why did you what, what where did you come up with the idea of liturgy digital liturgies why did you mm -hmm. go with that particular title and that concept and how should people who aren't familiar with your work understand what you mean by that yeah, so I was very influenced by a name you mentioned a few minutes ago, James K. A. Smith, um, who did a, a trilogy of kind of a little bit more academic books called the Cultural Liturgies tr Trilogy, uh, where basically, especially in the first book, Desiring the Kingdom, he he unpacks the idea of, of what he calls cultural liturgies. So a cultural liturgy is kind of a presentation of the good life that we get from kind of our surrounding culture. Um, and so the example that he uses that shows up in the book, in my book, is the shopping mall. So the shopping mall is not just a place where somebody stands at the entrance and tells you verbally when you come in, you should buy this product and then kind of lets you go your way. When you go into the mall, you're confronted by a variety of things that are all kind of part of the same story. And these things operate at an aesthetic level, not just an intellectual level. So instead of signs and people telling you, hey, buy this watch, buy this phone, you have music that's very appealing <laughs> that draws you into the store. You have advertisements that make uh, that show people smiling or looking sexy or whatever, uh, wearing this product. You have uh, mannequins and displays that are beautifully presented. And Smith does something brilliant. I think he, he compares this to a church. So if you go into a church, there are physical representations and physical practices that all tell the same story, the story of the gospel. Well, the story of the shopping mall is you will be happy if you consume this product. So that's kind of how I'm understanding what a liturgy is. A liturgy is, is, a, is kind of a heart-shaping practice or e even a heart-shaping habitat that presents our souls with a narrative of the good life at an aesthetic level. So, so something that just makes an idea or behavior plausible to us. And uh, in a church liturgy, uh, 
for listeners who who might be confused about this, you know, a church liturgy is is the order of worship in a lot of churches. So it's it's a call to worship where someone will read a scripture, a prayer of confession where the church prays, a corporate prayer of, of confession of sin, uh, a proclamation of absolution or or application of the gospel, uh, the, the preaching of a sermon. These are practices that are designed not just to give you information. Mm. But in the way that their com- their combined effect on us as people is to make the gospel more plausible to us. This is why it's easier to feel uh, kind of quote unquote more spiritual or more interested in Christ when we're in the church mm-hmm. service than it is on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. That's that's why it is. Is because when we enter into the to the service, there's a plausibility structure that's working on our affections, working on our on our heart, and the same is true for secular culture. and And so, in the book, I define the internet as as an example of a habitat that has a particular set of practices that it commends to our soul. And these practices actually make ideas more plausible to us than it would be otherwise. It's not that we go online and every website says, hey, you should be outraged today, or hey, you should be lustful today, or hey, you should be uh, despairing of your life today. It's, it's not that we get that content per se, although sometimes mm-hmm. we do. Uh, it's that it's the very form of the internet itself has a logic to it the way all technology does and especially intellectual technologies. Um, so, so the, the, the idea of liturgy is uh, something that really captivates our heart at an aesthetic level. And in so captivating, it makes certain ideas and behaviors feel more plausible and others less plausible. Well said. Well said. I think as modern people, we have lost that. Ironically, we, we're more materialistic than ever and we're more uh, shaped by materialism than ever before. But in some ways, I think we've we've lost our understanding of how the material world and our surroundings shape us. So it, it seems to me that people in the Middle Ages, they built these these great cathedrals because they understood that this was a space that people could enter into and they could experience the the awe the the power of god because because of the structure because of the beauty um because of the the separateness of this space from the the workaday world that people were were engaged in throughout the week um and, and you're right, I think the mall, is, it's a great example, but many of us don't think of the internet as a space or as a habitat. We, we do think of it as a technology, we think of it as a tool, um, but even that little subtle shift in your understanding of each time I engage with the social internet, I'm entering into an, an, an environment, I'm entering into a space and this space by its very nature is shaping me. It's it's having an influence on me uh, in ways that I can't even process uh, in real time, but I can begin to discern the fruits of that of that shaping experience. So these ideas of uh, digital liturgies, I assume that you did not intend for this to be exhaustive, but you highlight five of these digital liturgies, which you've you've already alluded to a few times here. We're not going to be able in our short time today to to dive into all five of them, but I definitely recommend people pick up the book and read it. I, I think you'll be surprised at how 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 much 
Samuel's description of these different liturgies relates to your own life. You'll, you'll see there's like little connections happening almost on every page where the dots are being connected for you. But maybe if you don't mind just running through with us what those five digital liturgies are that your book addresses. Yeah. So uh, the five are authenticity. So the idea that in a disembodied internet habitat, uh, the idea of authority is upended and authority tends to gravitate toward anyone who has kind of the most uh, compelling narrative. So this this emphasis on authenticity as a as a kind of a sign of of human authority. Uh, the next one is outrage. Probably don't need to even say much about that. A lot of people experience that, but there's a logic to it. Um, the internet actually prevents deep thought in the way it's designed, and it encourages us to the kind of knee jerk reaction that has become common. Uh, the third one is uh, consumption. So I, in the in this chapter, I make the uh, rather, well, I don't want to say counterintuitive, but uh, perhaps difficult claim that the internet is pornographically shaped. Mm. Uh, and by that, I mean, the internet doesn't just like feature pornography. Uh, it, there's actually a pornographic logic to the whole internet. And there are examples uh, in that of the book. And this isn't the same as to say that everything on the internet is pornographic. Uh, pornographic uh but it is to say that it's um uh, there's a there's a voyeuristic logic and a, a kind of a a, a godlike ability to realize fantasy mm -hmm. that is is inherent to the logic of of computers of yeah. of, of the power I, I of the want internet. to I, I want to spend some time on that one so we'll loop back and uh, that was for yeah. sure something yeah. i wanted to dig deeper in i would say counterintuitive i would say brilliant a brilliant observation that the internet by its very nature is um i actually jotted this down you you had it that the uh, the web by virtue of what it is is intrinsically pornographically shaped and um I think you do a very compelling job of, of making that case. Mm -hmm. So consumption is that third digital liturgy. And I, I interrupted your, your, your flow of thought there. So apologies, but I know another one is shame. That was, mm -hmm. um, yeah, actually I think shame is number three. I think I got the numbers mixed up. Shame is number three and, and consumption is number four. Uh, and shame is, is talking about kind of what we identify as cancel culture. So like, why, why is it that people can lose their jobs and their reputations just for, um, you know, what we would consider to be very minor sins and just kind of public foibles. It's like, well, actually, uh, when, when a generation comes of age, having experienced the world through the logic of the internet and through the logic of the computer, uh, I think they internalize the idea that I should have perfect control over what I experience. So that if I, so for example, if I'm if I'm online and I don't like what somebody's saying, I can I can simply close their profile, I can block them, I can mute them, I can stop the video, stop the podcast, whatever I want to do. Mm. Um, I think there's a really profound sense in which people are bringing that same logic to their offline life. They're, there's, they're, having, a, they're having difficulty conceptualizing if, if this is my experience in, in one uh, aspect of life and, and an aspect of life that's deeply formative, why can't I just do this in other areas of life? Mm. Um, so, and that creates this kind of drive of, of shame culture. Mm. Uh, and then the fifth one is uh, meaninglessness. So this, 
the idea that there's just so much stuff. I think this is the this chapter that actually uh, kind of resonates at the most immediate level with a lot of people. It's just this exhaustion of one more thing to watch, one more thing to to know about, one more argument to get involved in. And it's just this crushing sense of of the 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 meaninglessness of of kind of just the empty scroll with doom scrolling we call it right um and so and so those are just the five digital liturgies and i i kind of unpack those but then also offer what i can would consider to be the biblical counter liturgy to that so these are all heart shaping practices these are all plausibility structures but what does the scripture say about each of these things and how does the gospel point us toward a different way of feeling and a different way of thinking yeah, it's 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 uh, great. All five of those digital liturgies, I could see them in my own life, and just how much I've been, I, I am constantly influenced by that, shaped by just by virtue of being online and engaging with these technologies. You you see the the imprint of those liturgies in the way that you think, the way that you feel. Like you said, um, it's something amazing that. You can go online, you know, either in a in a positive or happy state of mind, or even just neutral. And then, it, I think Twitter is the worst at this for me. Is like immediately just get frustrated with humanity. Like I'm throwing in the towel. Mm -hmm. There's no hope. <laughs> but because right. you get a sense of reality that is not rooted in the real world, in the physical world, and and I I want to maybe get to get a, end our conversation on this idea of the importance of physicality and embodiment and why it's essential for us to have biblical wisdom and, and to to actually stay connected to reality itself but let's maybe mm -hmm. look back to that fourth digital liturgy of consumption i thought this was perhaps like the most insightful like I, in that chapter, I was reading things that I don't think I've heard anyone um, articulate, and they make a lot of sense. So this idea of the the internet itself being intrinsically pornographically shaped, and and you you mention three characteristics of pornography that the internet itself shares, and so a lot of times we think of pornography as being distinct from the internet, and, and it is. But in some ways, I, I don't know if you would agree with this, but in my mind, what made sense is that they, it's the idea of like an illicit drug, a, a drug that's going to have a certain effect on you. And then there are, you know, fentanyl may be like the, the most extreme version of this drug that, that you can just, you can take it and it, it can kill you. To me, that's, that's kind of like pornography. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's affecting you in these three ways, but it's, it's a lethal dose. Whereas mm -hmm. the internet itself though is is affecting you in those same three ways so what are these three characteristics that the internet shares with pornography specifically that that are causing us to be addicted and to come back to it again and again yeah so uh, the one of the main ones that i devote a lot of time to is just the the power to kind of create fantasy um so I, I look kind of carefully at uh, like what the internet is and it's it's this kind of endless um, 
creation machine. And I think Alan, Alan Noble has a great line in his book, uh, You Are Not Your Own, where he says, you know, because of the internet, we're all Nero. We all have the power of a Roman emperor. And, and the point he was getting at is that if you wanted to kind of live out this exorbitant sexual fantasy, um, the only way to do that would be to have you know, limitless power. You would have to, you'd have to be able to command people to give you what you want. Uh, and so that's why, you know, historically like tyrants and emperors and dictators have lived a certain way that normal people couldn't live. Well, what the internet is basically is, is it's a fantasy machine. It's a, it's a creation machine. So I can, I can determine who I am online and I can I can just type in a search box and I can summon any wild thing from my imagination to come to life. And uh, when I was writing this book, this was before the uh, you know artificial intelligence and chat GPT were a big conversation item. But even especially in the light of that, this is this becomes extremely relevant because there are now uh, software programs that people are using that can generate pornographic images of anyone they want. Mm. So they, they just feed uh, you know, a prompt into a machine and say, show me so-and-so doing such-and-such, and the machine gives them mm. that image. Mm. Um, that is, you know, we recoil at the morals of that initially, but I think we need to think more carefully about what's going on here. We're, we're exercising what is, can only be considered a godlike power of control over our experience of the world. Um, so there's, there's that. And there's also, there's also the sense that the internet kind of takes normal human life and turns it into a consumable. So, so because we're disembodied online, there's a sense in which we're not, we're not living life uh, experientially, but we're kind of consuming life. And one of the examples that I give in the book is there's a, there's a really popular genre of YouTube video called a reaction video. Uh, so in a reaction video, the, the, user or the content creator is has the camera turned on themselves and you can watch their facial reactions as they watch a movie or uh you know a sports highlight or something like that what's fascinating about that is that where do people typically or have traditionally watched reactions like that? Well, in community, right? In <laughs> friendship. Like when you when you go to the movie theater with your friends, Part of the experience is that you're not just watching the movie, you're watching each other watch the movie. And that adds to the enjoyment of it. A reaction video is essentially a simulation of friendship. Hmm. That's what it is. It's a simulation of friendship. The, the content creator has the camera turned on themselves so that it looks like you are looking at them and they are looking at you and you're both watching something together and you're, you're watching them react. And it's a simulated hmm. friendship. Is it friendship that's actually happening? No, you're watching, uh, you're watching a content creator perform, and the idea is that if you if you can kind of immerse yourself in it at just the right level, you can kind of forget this and you can just enjoy it as if that person were sitting right next to you. Um, that's that's what pornography is. Pornography takes an experience. It takes something that has to be experienced between subjects and turns it into a consumable commodity for a third party. That, mm -hmm. That's, that is what pornography is. And so I think there's a, there's a fundamental continuity between the way that the, the way that so much of the internet and the internet has a logic to it that does this, uh, that kind of 
turns life into a consumable that we can we can just use really quickly and discard. There's a continuity be between that and even something like a reaction video and the way pornography works on our imaginations. It, by turning this experience into something that we can just quickly consume and then discard until we want to consume it again. Yeah, I, I was thinking about um, in the book, you also use the example of accounts that are dedicated to food, you know, and we actually have a, a term that we now use called, you know, you know, food porn that these, we just yeah. enjoy watching the food be prepared, watching the food be eaten. We're not actually eating the food. We're not preparing the food, but we're, we're just consuming that those images, those, those video uh, pixels. And you, you talked about novelty consumption mm -hmm. and isolation that these are three things that you certainly see when it comes to the the um, engagement of pornography on the internet. So, you know, novelty. You know, there's been connections between um, you know studies about how the people who are addicted to pornography how it changes them. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons is because you can't just watch the same thing over and over and get the same uh, chemical and emotional response to it. So you, you're always right. looking for something new, something novel, uh, something that you haven't seen before. And that's and again, if you go to the whole concept of the scroll, whether it's on Instagram or, or Twitter or Facebook, it's it's feeding into that same desire, you know, that, that the 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 eyes are never satisfied as the scriptures say we're always looking for something new and so there you see it novelty in how why, why pornography is is so captivating but then you see that mm -hmm. same characteristic in the internet as a whole the social internet mm -hmm. and then like you said uh making things that should be um sacred or um very personal making those just uh, consumables, uh, consumable mm -hmm. experiences, and then isolation. Talk a little bit more about isolation and and how we see that. You already mentioned it just a little bit there with the reaction videos, but how do we see the internet shaping us to be more isolated? Yeah, well, the internet essentially is something that has to be experienced, particularly the social internet. When we say the social internet, we're, we're we mean social media in particular, and. Um, uh, kind of, you know, the, the conversations and, and subculture that is created by having accounts and avatars and things like that. Uh, I think I think about isolation is our technology itself is pretty much designed to be used by individuals. So, uh, you know, your phone is the shape of your palm. It's about the size of your palm. And so when th when things get transferred onto the phone and there's a lot of work being done right now about how much of life is going to smartphones where you have to have smartphones to buy tickets to certain things and, and have access to to certain ordinary uh products um when you grab your phone uh your phone is your phone is basically the size of your hand and so the idea is that you and your phone are meant to be together sure. you and other people cannot really commune over your phone. Um, and so there's a logic to the internet that says, and specifically mobile internet, that says that the essence of enjoying this, the essence of, of existing is to kind of be on your own, is to just 
be isolated from other people. And that's why, uh, that, you know, that, that's kind of the logic behind binging. So like binging Netflix. And these are, this is vocabulary that these companies use themselves, mm -hmm. you know, feel like binging this weekend. Um, that's the logic of isolation. It's, it's not just, you know, oh, you're watching too much. It's that you can only, you can really only binge effectively if you're by yourself. Uh, and so it's, it's a technology that uh, by its very logic says, uh, you know, get by yourself, be by yourself, use it by yourself. Uh, this is this is what uh, you know. True entertainment looks like. This is what happiness looks like. It's what leisure looks like. Um, and and we can't. That's not really an issue of content. Like there's there's not really anything on the internet that people go to that says get alone <laughs> right now or you should be isolated. It's it's not that we're receiving that message intellectually. It's that everything in the internet's logic kind of pushes us toward that direction anyway. Uh, and so that's, that's what makes it kind of have this liturgical plausibility that, that makes us desire isolation, even if we don't realize that's what well, that's what's happening. Yeah. I realize we're, we're about 40 minutes into this conversation. Probably should have said this at the outset. You are not a Luddite. You are not someone who is saying that no. hey, technology, social internet is evil. We need to try to, to minimize the amount of time or, or maybe even try to, extricate ourselves completely from our engagement. What you're saying is that the the social internet by its very form uh, pushes us in a direction away from yes. what God describes as being real, uh, being the path towards the good life. So it's this yeah. it's this weird it's this weird place where okay it's not it's not evil but when you engage in it, the current is going to be taking you just by by its very nature. It's going to be pulling you away from what God has communicated as being real, being good, being true. And so every time we engage, every time we enter into this environment of modern technology, the social Internet, those forces are acting on us. And we need to be aware that it's happening so that we can identify where we're coming to believe lies or we're coming mm -hmm. to practice a life that doesn't lead to uh, the good life. Um, and we also need to engage purposely in, in counter liturgies and <laughs> in, in what the scriptures offer us as uh, the path that will shape us to, to see what is true to see what is real and to practice what leads to the good life. So you mm -hmm. talk, you have a, a, a great section in there on Christian wisdom, biblical wisdom, and how that differs from how we might think of wisdom in just a generic sense. So, you know, what is it about Christian wisdom that makes it distinct when the Bible talks about living with wisdom? What is it encouraging mm -hmm. us towards? That's a really good question. Uh, Christian wisdom, uh, we'll say something about wisdom first, and then I'll, I'll kind of talk about what makes Christian wisdom distinct from non-Christian wisdom. So Christian wisdom is essentially um, the, the, the practice of living life in light of reality. And so you, you order your life, you and I order our lives in such a way that we are 
in touch with reality. So the way one writer puts it is we live along, along the grain of reality rather than against the grain. Uh, and so what that shows up in uh, the, the kind of things that we do, uh, the way we treat each other, right? So if, if I take you seriously as, as a person, as a, as a human image bearer, as somebody who um, has value and worth uh, that, that applies to how we work, how we, treat the earth. The earth has value. It has objective, uh, givenness. It's, this is, we're not living in a simulation, you know, just sorry, Elon Musk. We're not living in a simulation. The world has a physical reality to it. And if you, if you, you know, the whole point of the wisdom literature is, you know, if you do certain things, you get certain results because God has created the world with a certain order to it and a certain logic to it. Um, that's really the message of the wisdom literature. And so wisdom is really the skill of living life in light of reality. Now, what makes Christian wisdom distinct is that Christian wisdom is looking at ultimate reality and it's looking at the reality of realities, which is God. So to live in Christian wisdom is to live in light of who God is. And when we live in light of who God is, we see ourselves the way God sees us and the way God sees us is as created persons who have an embodied existence, uh, who are created to uh, to cultivate the earth and and to exercise Jesus's mission in the world that He's made. That is our call as human beings, and so anything that makes that feel less likely or less appealing is by definition pushing us away from wisdom. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the question about not being a Luddite, because I, I think a lot of people get a little confused when I say, I'm, I'm not telling you to throw away your devices or cancel your memberships. Um, I, I think the, the point is, you know, Jesus in the high priestly prayer, he said, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, which is a stunning thing to consider when you consider the things that the world was about to do to Jesus and to his disciples. But Jesus doesn't say, I pray that you take them out of the world. I pray that you would protect them by your word. The The prayer for us today is the same. Uh, we don't have to come out of the world. The world is, we live in a technological world. We live in a digital age. Uh, and that's not an accident. That's under God's providence. Um, the question is, how, what are the specific ways in which we can be guarded by God's word today in the specific pressures that we face in a technological age, in an online age? And so that's really the question that I'm asking is how, what are the specific fault lines? What are the specific gospel promises? What are the specific facets of Christian wisdom that have to be considered and followed especially as this culture, as this age that we live in, presses on us in certain directions. So it's it's not really a question of getting rid or of kind of withdrawing totally. Although in the book, I do commend things like taking breaks, bringing community into our relationship with technology, not isolating ourselves. Absolutely, that's part of wisdom too. But the, the more fundamental question is, are we living in light of reality of who God says we are? And are there parts of our life that do not reflect that reality? And if there are, then we need to be able to name that. We need to be able to be aware of that. And we also need to see how the gospel leads us back toward repentance and toward living as the people that God calls us to be. One of the frightening things that I see is we now have a generation coming of age that has only known the social internet as a, a reality and a, a shaping 
uh, force in life. And because the social internet almost at every point pulls us away from what God has revealed and God has declared to be reality, whether that's the reality of my identity, uh, the reality of, of um, what, what truth consists of, how we find truth, or even the reality of what's going to bring the most fulfilling life, um, even the reality of what is reality, uh, you know, the, the social internet almost at every point is going to lead you away or off track from what, what God has revealed and God has stated about these things. And so I appreciated that your book at each point and then at the conclusion really sought to introduce, I guess you could say countermeasures, like how can we mm -hmm. purposely enter into habitats that that repair and reshape our understanding of these things. And I've appreciated this about your work. And it's something that I've, I've, I would say over the last five years, I've been growing in my conviction that physicality itself, embodiment itself is inseparable from our being able to understand uh, God's revelation. There's something about mm. the physical world and ourselves being embodied people that Jesus coming down as an embodied person, that if we lose touch with just the physicality of who God has created us to be, we're going to have a really hard time finding mm -hmm. the truth about who God is, who he says we are. Mm -hmm. One of the, one of the practices that uh, you recommend towards the end of the book is the idea of location and embodiment in the physical world mm -hmm. as a way of shaping our understanding of our own identity. So maybe as we, as we wrap up, could you share a little more about how embodiment can help us discover God's truth? Yeah. So the, in Genesis one, God creates a uh, male and female in his own image. And what it means to be male and female is that's a bodily reality. And when the Bible says he creates male and female in his own image, that means that the male and female constitute his image. So what it means to be made in the image of God involves our bodies. And that's a mind blowing thought for a lot of people, because I, I think we typically think of ourselves as made in the image of God spiritually or rationally. Um, but the Bible says that it, it's, it involves our bodies too. And in fact, the whole scope of scripture says that we are embodied, created persons, and we will never not be embodied, created persons. Uh, we are separated from our bodies temporarily upon death, but eschatologically at the end of history, there's going to be a re-embodiment. We are going to have glorified bodies. We're, we're not, you know, as one of my teachers like to say, we're not going to sit on the cloud <laughs> and play harps, you know, all the time. Uh, we're going to, we're going to have bodies. We're going to have glorified bodies like the one that Christ had when he rose again. And what that means is that anything that actually helps us or shouldn't say help anything that actually tricks us into thinking that we are other than our body, that we are, uh, that our bodies are a problem that we need to escape from, from who we are as physical people. That's a problem from a, from a Christian perspective. And so I think, but I think the way we, we answer this 
is to recover a sense of gratitude and goodness about not just our bodies, not just the way we look or, or the shape we have, but also about the life that God has actually given us. So that's that's part of what I call givenness in the book. I was born to a, a husband and wife who were uh, living in Dallas, Texas, and they have names and they had locations. I was I was born into a particular context. I have particular DNA that I did not choose. I, the world around me is a certain way that I cannot control. That's givenness, and that's that's a good thing. It's a good thing that there is so much of reality, in fact, most of reality that I cannot exercise direct control over. I, I don't create it. I simply receive it. And that's a good thing. And to, to, we want to walk in that. And I, I think practically for a lot of people, what that's going to mean, uh, especially in the kind of culture that we live in, is that we redirect our attention away from things that are far away and remote and kind of stoke our desires to escape or to, to, to kind of live this fantasy life. We direct our attention away from those things. And instead, we set our eyes on the people and the places that God has actually put right in front of us. It's so easy <laughs> to want to escape. It's so yeah. easy to want to escape. And I think a lot of people are wanting to escape because they, they feel unknown. They feel insecure. They feel like they are insufficient. And, and the power of the gospel is that the gospel comes and it says, no, you, you are created on purpose by a creator who gave you exactly what he did uh, with great sovereign power. And you can actually experience the blessing on who you are and where you are and the kind of person that you are, the kind of people who were put into your life without your input. You can experience blessing in that because it all comes from the hand of a creator. This wasn't random. This wasn't chance. This isn't just something that doesn't matter. It all comes from the maker of reality himself. And so as we recover that, I think we'll recover things like gratitude. I think we'll recover our attention spans as we as we can kind of uh, fight back against the current of distraction. And I think we'll recover worship. I think we'll recover a sense of, hey, God has me in this situation and I can, I can take on the stresses and the insecurities and, and the hard things of life uh, because Christ is with me and he's for me. Man, I wish we had another hour, my friend. Um, but, but what you're touching on there is so helpful. And I, I strongly encourage people to pick up this book and dig into it. Like you said, just the, the reality from, from the Christian perspective, the idea of givenness that, that we already have in ourselves, the clues to how God wants us to live in the world. Um, the idea of place that that we are embedded in a given location and again that that's going to give us insights into what is it that that god is calling me to do and so much of so much of modern technology you made a great point that you know as connectivity has increased connection has gone down and i think it's because of mm -hmm. what you're describing there that that we have this sense that we have to define who we are versus mm -hmm. receive who we are. We have this idea that that we can be everywhere then instead of the place where we, we're actually at at a given moment. And that disconnects mm -hmm. us and, and, as you say, dislocates us from where mm -hmm. we're actually physically at. Um, so I encourage people to go out and pick the book up. It's Digital Liturgies by Samuel James. Um, again, 
great, great work. I appreciate what God's been teaching you and your willingness to, to over the years, refine that and distill it and uh, put this book out in the world. So thanks for, for coming on again, Samuel. Would love to have you back on in the future. Thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Thank you.